If you could go back in time, where would you go? Back to a point in your own life? Back to ancient times? Would you try not to interfere with anything so you wouldn't affect the future? Would just the fact of your being there affect the future anyway? Would there even be a you anymore when you got back to the present? Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan, who wrote this episode in the present, which will be the past when, in the future, I record it, which I'm doing now, which will be in the past when you're listening to this in the future, which will be your present. So I have effectively time-traveled, right? That's how it works? This week, I'll tell you two stories of people who claim to have shown up from an impossible place possibly traveling through time to get there. In July of 1954, as passengers filed through customs at Tokyo International Airport, a middle-aged white man stepped up to a customs agent and handed over his documents. His passport from the country of Torred looked official enough, if slightly different than other countries' passports, had two stamps from Japan from that year alone, showing that this was his third trip to the country. Despite that, the customs agent was like, um, Torred? And the man was like, yep, or whatever the Japanese equivalent of yep is. Apparently he spoke Japanese, French, and a few other languages. And the customs agent was like, uh, I've never heard of Tored. Where is it? And the man was like, what do you mean? You've never heard of Tored. It is my country. Asked to point to Tored on a map, however, the man pointed to a country between France and Spain called Andorra and was genuinely confused. He said he had no idea what Andorra was and that his country of Torred had a rich 1,000-year-old history. For further proof, the man pulled out his checkbook, but the customs official who had now gotten involved trying to sort out the situation couldn't find a bank matching the name of the bank of the checks. He was also carrying currency from many different countries, which was what you had to do back before debit cards or Bitcoin or whatever the kids are using these days, which at least indicated that he did indeed travel internationally a lot. So now this guy is starting to seem pretty suspicious, walking around with checks from a non-existent bank in a non-existent country. The customs people were like, okay, if you're here on business, what company do you work for? The man happily provided the name of the company he worked for. But when officials called the company, they learned that while it did have a branch in Japan, it didn't have one in Torred. It also had no record of this man either working for them or having an appointment with anyone in the company. The man told the officials what hotel he was staying at while in town, but the hotel had no record of the man's booking. After hours of questioning, the man finally asked to speak to government officials. He was then brought to a nearby hotel to wait while they tried to sort things out, which I have to say, a hotel is a pretty cushy place to make a weird, suspicious person wait while you try to figure out if he's a criminal or a spy or whatever. The hotel room was on a high floor with no balcony or any other way to get out other than the door, which was guarded by two people who had been given the man's documents to hold on to, including his passport, checkbook, and cash. The next morning, when officials checked in on the man, he was gone. 
Not only had the man vanished, but all his paperwork the guards had been holding overnight was nowhere to be found. Who was this mysterious man? And why would he have claimed to come from a place that doesn't exist? How did he have official-looking documents from a non-existent country? And how the hell did he vanish taking that paperwork with him? The theory that has been bandied about as long as the internet has existed for people to bandy these kinds of things about usually supposes that the man from Torad traveled through time or from another universe. And sure, if you believe he really did go poof and disappear, I can see how it's not a far leap from there to he traveled through time. In this time-traveling-slash-multiverse version of the story, you'd also have to believe that this man either traveled through time or into an alternate universe by mistake. Otherwise, he wouldn't have been so confused when his country didn't exist on the map, right? He would have been like, oh, right, of course it doesn't exist yet-slash-in-this-universe. And then he would have been taken to a psychiatric ward. Also, he probably would have brought proper documentation for the time period slash universe to which he was traveling. Like he's headed out the door and he's like, oops, my passport's from the wrong dimension, better grab the right one. By now, you know that when I looked into this story, I wasn't like, wow, he vanished into thin air? Cool. No, I was more like, come on now. I was born at night, but not last night. You know what I mean? And of course, I found a version of the same story which doesn't include him disappearing like magic. Nonetheless, the other version of the story of the man from Torred, honestly, is still pretty fucking strange. The less fantastical but still bonkers story of this mysterious man begins the same way. A guy shows up at customs in Tokyo and says he's from a place called Torred. In this version of the story, the man, whose name is John Allen Zegris, hands over a passport the size of a magazine, apparently issued from the capital city of Tamanaraset in the country of Torred. The passport included the official stamp from the country of Torred and the phrase... Rich Ubwai Achtra Nagusi Habesi Chwap Turapa, written beneath it. The customs agent asked him to locate Torad on the map, and in this story, Torad is somewhere south of the Sahara Desert. The man, whose name may or may not have been John Allen Zagris, did not vanish from a hotel room, but rather was arrested for attempting to enter Japan with falsified documents. The version in which he blooped himself out of the hotel room was, oddly enough, not picked up by local media at all. One would think that whatever the 1960s Japanese version of the National Enquirer was would have paid a lot of money for a story like that. And it may surprise you to know that I don't speak Japanese. But guess who does? People on Reddit. Now look, you've heard me decry Reddit in the past, and while it's true that it can be a cesspool of toxicity, it can also be, it turns out, a place to get useful information. Which, now that I say it, basically describes the entire internet. Anyway. On 
Unlike the version of the story where this guy mysteriously and magically disappears from a locked hotel room, it turns out this story was covered in the local media at the time. Just six months ago, a Reddit user posted the articles in Japanese and someone else translated them. The man from Torred, it turned out, was either named John Allen K. Zeigler or Zyglass, spelled differently in the span of one article, and was an American citizen who entered Japan with a forged passport from a country called Nagusi Habesi Gululululul Esprit, which I hope I don't need to point out is not a real place. So where Torred came from, no one knows. And look, the translation of the article also said that Zeigler was, quote, a man who has often eaten people, which apparently was supposed to mean that he fed off people. So it's possible Gululululul is a mistranslation, but I can't imagine what it was supposed to be. The man claimed to speak 14 languages fluently and said that he was sent to Japan on orders from an Arab-related agency, but was working for the U.S. for both the FBI and the CIA. Eventually, investigators determined that Zeigler was hopping around the world on this fake passport, passing forged checks and traveler's checks until the second or third time he tried to enter Japan and was caught. Zeigler or Zeiglas or Zegres or whatever was tried and sentenced to a year in prison. Upon hearing the sentence, he tried to kill himself with a broken bottle he had smuggled into the courtroom in his mouth. I'm not even going to touch that last part because no thank you. My first thought was maybe he was a spy. But the thing about spies is they usually try to go unnoticed, you know? Listen, I've seen enough James Bond movies to know that spies are issued official passports from all the countries. If this guy had been a spy, he would have handed over a passport from somewhere basic, like, I don't know, Canada. No offense, Canadians, you folks are fine, I'm just saying. No one ever suspects Canadians, you know? And then he would have had sex with the customs agent in his hotel room that night. Also, where was his government-issued cyanide tooth? He should have just been able to bite down on his back molar and suffer a gruesome death right there in the courtroom. He wouldn't have had to smuggle a piece of glass in his mouth. If he had been a spy, he wouldn't have even made it to the courtroom. He would have cyanided himself quicker than you can say, And yes, I do get all my spy information from James Bond. And even if he was just some run-of-the-mill con man running around like Leonardo DiCaprio and Catch Me If You Can, how did he manage to get away with what he was doing at all? Like, I get that there was an internet back then, but people had maps and, like, some common sense, right? Didn't the name Nagusi Habesi Gululululul Esprit raise anyone's red flags before that one customs agent in Japan? Okay, so the man from Torred most likely didn't travel through time. But coming up, I'll tell you about someone who did claim to time travel from the future and why his story is still being debated today. 
In November of 2000, someone with the screen name Time Travel Zero started posting in the message boards at the Time Travel Institute website, which, yes, is a thing. The website, that is. The institute, as far as I can tell, is just a guy. I don't know what it takes to call yourself an institute, but apparently this guy has it. Time Travel Zero, who said his name was John Titor, said that he was visiting 2000 from the year 2036 to see his family in Rochester, Minnesota, grab some family photos and take a break before heading back to 2036. But John Titor hadn't traveled back 36 years just for funsies, and this wasn't his first stop. Titor was on official military business. His first stop had also been to Rochester, Minnesota, but 25 years earlier. The purpose of the trip, he said, was to get an IBM 5100 computer, which was an early portable computer. And by portable, they just meant it didn't take up an entire room like non-portable computers did back then. It weighed, can you guess? 50 pounds. 50 pounds! A 50-pound portable computer. And why, you might be asking yourself, would someone from the year 2036 need an ancient 50-pound portable computer? And let me tell you, you're going to feel like a real idiot when I explain this. Titor wrote, As you are probably aware, Unix will have a timeout error in 2038, and many of the mainframe systems that ran a large part of the infrastructure were based on very old IBM computer code. The 5100 has the ability to easily translate between the old IBM code, APL, BASIC, and with a few tweaks, 1975 Unix. I mean, duh, right? Everyone knows that. So, I promise you no science in this episode, and I am going to stick to that. But just to explain this a little further, if you were alive around the turn of the 21st century, you might remember a craze going around about how Y2K was going to bring about the end of days. The theory was that all the computers weren't going to know how to keep going when the clocks went from 11.59 p.m. on December 31st, 1999 to 12 a.m. January 1st, 2000, and it would cause complete global mayhem. As you're probably aware, global mayhem did not ensue at the stroke of midnight in the year 2000. I think they figured out a patch or whatever. I don't know. I'm not a computer scientist. The Unix timecode thing is supposed to be like the Y2K disaster, only in 2038, not 2000. And now you're probably wondering why in the future we, A, never figured out this patch without having to literally defy the laws of physics and travel through time. Like, honestly, wouldn't the technology to translate between old and new code be slightly easier to figure out than time travel? And B... There really wasn't a single spare IBM 5100 laying around somewhere? Like the U.S. government doesn't have one of those junk drawers filled with old computer cords and floppy disks? Well, Tidor was two steps ahead of you. Actually, he was 36 years ahead of you in 2000 and explained that the entire world was recovering from years of devastating wars that had literally cut the world population nearly in half and destroyed a lot of technology, taking all the IBM 5100s with it, I guess. 
In a series of posts, Tidor describes life in 2038 in ways that could have been taken directly from the pages of a science fiction novel. There was the decades-long civil war that began in 2005, stemming from U.S. elections problems in 2004. For some reason, according to Tidor, Russia hit major U.S., Chinese, and European cities with nuclear weapons in this civil war, which is particularly strange when you remember that the definition of a civil war is that it takes place within one country divided against itself. But who am I to debate semantics with someone from the future? Tidor, in his defense, also referred to this war as World War III, and really, we should cut him a little slack. You think you get jet-lagged flying across the country? Imagine flying across decades. He might have been a little jumbled. Tidor was a soldier at age 13. 13! Have you ever met a 13-year-old? Not the first kind of person I would want defending me and my country, you know? This war, Tidor said, results in the U.S. splitting into five regions with five different presidents. And honestly, the way he describes life in the post-war United States is kind of my jam. His family lived in a treehouse community in Florida. Ignore the Florida part. A treehouse community. He said that by 2036, people live much more locally and depend more on family than they had in the 20th century. Radiation has wiped out most mass food production, so a typical day is spent farming on your family farm, which, you know, is hard work. But when you sit down to a plate of food you grew yourself, that's worth the crippling back pain of relentless farming. There are also a lot of blackouts and internet outages, but no one really minds. They just go outside and hang out together and tell stories or whatever. I'm not going to lie. I've been dreaming of reverting back to a hyper-localized economy for many, many years. It's my idea of a sort of post-apocalyptic utopia. It would be nice if half the people on the planet didn't need to die in a massive nuclear war. Like, that would be awful. But hanging out in treehouses with no internet, eating local butter on homemade bread? Sign me up. Now, if you're curious about the mechanics of time travel, I am not the person you're looking for. But if you insist, the science of Tidor's time travel machine has to do with singularities and gravity and high-speed photon acceleration and black holes. And actually, Tidor himself got away with not explaining it thoroughly by basically being like, I'm just the guy using the time machine. I'm not the time machine mechanic, which is fair. If you asked me to explain how my car works in detail, I'd be like, uh, gas and pedals and tires? Tidor posted pictures of his time machine, which looked like something from Back to the Future. We'll post a link to the manual with pictures, which was written apparently on March 21st, 2034. The time machine itself was portable, at least as portable as a 50-pound computer. Tidor chose a 1960s-era Chevy as his mode of transport to 1975 because he wanted a car that wouldn't stick out. He switched to a Chevy truck for his trip into 2000. I would make a joke about Chevys here, but I don't know enough about cars to make fun of them.
John Titor hung around the Time Travel Institute message boards for about four months, which personally I find an excessive amount of time to be on message boards when you're visiting a time before you were born. Like, didn't he want to go out and experience new food crazes like gourmet cupcakes, kale chips, and cold brew coffee? Or catch an Eminem or Beyonce concert? Can you tell I googled pop culture in the year 2000? But this was not his first appearance on the Time Travel Institute website. A month earlier, Time Travel Zero quietly appeared in a chat room, which was like a message board, only in real time. So instead of it taking months for conversations to evolve into screaming matches about which brand of politics is the best one, it only took minutes. The tone of the chat was pretty chill and conversational. Basically, Time Travel Zero was like, oh, hey, I'm from the future, just popping in to see what's up. At first, there were only two other people in the room. Hi. Hi, Time T. Greetings. Sorry I can't stop to chat time, but it's way past my bedtime. No problem. Well, I have been awake for 24 hours. Oh, what the heck. Maybe I will stop and introduce myself to time. My name is John. I'm 38 and a time traveler from Florida. Which time are you from? 2036. Is it a good year? For me, yes. It's not far to come? That's right. So you have been born as well. Well, That could be confusing. No problem. So John goes on to casually describe some of the things about the future, answering the basic, if you mess with history, does it affect your future questions? He explains that there are infinite world lines, which is just a fancy futuristic way of saying timeline. So, having gone back to 1975, he created a new world line where his actions won't affect what happens in 2036. Honestly, folks, I don't know. The metaphor he uses is a room lined with mirrors, which is kind of confusing because what you see in every mirror is just a reflection of you, so I don't know how that corresponds to creating new timelines and new universes. But you know that line in The Matrix where the Oracle tells Neo not to worry about the vase, and he says, what vase, as he knocks over a vase and breaks it? And the Oracle says, What's really going to bake your noodle later on is, would you still have broken it if I hadn't said anything? Implying that there is an alternate timeline in which none of that happens. Or does it? At one point in the chat room, the only two left in the room are John and Y, and the conversation brushes up against a late-night chat room-type flirtation. John tells Y his wife died from radiation fallout from the nukes that hit Florida. I cannot say sorry for something that hasn't happened yet, but I am sorry. I talk too much. (laughs) And I don't talk enough. I just wish things didn't have to happen the way they will. We cannot change it. It's too late. I sensed that. I regret what you could have been, but what will result? Not. Are you drinking? No. I am. Orange wine. I love it. I think my ethereal has taken over. My body has no need for anything more. Are you alone? Yes. No children? None. Are you afraid? What of? Being alone? No. I don't mean to be so perosinal. I aplogos. It's all right. I'm used to it. To being alone? To being asked personal questions as well. I appreciate your kindness. T.Y. 
but that is my nature. Listen, anywhere else you learn about the story of John Titor, the time traveler from the year 2036, you're not going to get this kind of drama. So, you're welcome. Titor's story on the message board was consistent with the one he gave in the chat room. He answered questions relatively straightforwardly until people started asking him for future sports scores and stock tips. And then he got testy. He was like, you know, people hate you guys in the future. Sorry about it, but like, everyone thinks of you as lazy, selfish assholes who eat garbage and buy too much shit. Are stock tips really the first thing you'll want to know about in the future? As a representative of your time period, do you realize what that says about you? You should probably know that this time is not remembered for its selflessness, charity, or ability to work together. I mean, you got us pegged there, John. I gotta give it to you. But Titor did give a few predictions, some of which were... Hats are more common in the future. We do not spend nearly the amount of time on our hair as people do now. And slightly more seriously, he predicted a disease that looked very much like mad cow disease. He said the U.S. would not find weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and that China would successfully send someone into orbit. These three things, it turns out, came to pass. And you know me, I'm going to be that wet blanket that says, these are relatively easy things to predict if you were paying attention at all to the news at the end of the 20th century. And there was plenty that John got wrong, starting with the fact that the Unix timecode disaster would really have only been a disaster if 32-bit computers were still common, but we've pretty much completely transitioned to 64-bit, and the things that still use 32-bit systems aren't significant enough to cause a worldwide meltdown if they malfunction. It would be more like the Unix timecode inconvenience. Also, not for nothing, but according to Titor, we should be in the middle of a civil-slash-world war, he said would start in 2005. As far as I know, no one has nuked anyone else. Not in the last 21 years, anyway. And I'm pretty sure 13-year-olds are not yet being asked to serve in the military, but I give that just a matter of time. He also somehow failed to predict one of the worst terrorist attacks of modern time that happened less than six months after he stopped posting. You'd think he might have given us a heads up about the attacks of September 11th, 2001. Of course, all of that John could explain away by saying we ended up on a different world line than the one where all that awfulness happens. When he visited us, he created a new world line where we have our own brand of awfulness. The only way to debunk John Titor's story for good would be to identify and find the person behind the screen named Time Travel Zero, and so far, no one has been able to do that. Some have claimed to come close. The three main candidates are brothers. There's Maury Haber, who became the chief technology officer at an identity protection company who, one might argue, could be particularly well-versed in hiding their own identity online if, say, they wanted to pretend to be someone else. 
Then there's John Rick Haber, who was a computer scientist who one might argue could have known about this relatively obscure IBM 5100 software thing. And lastly, there's Lawrence Haber, an entertainment lawyer who, I don't know what his motivation would be, and honestly, you'd think he would have figured out a way to copyright all of it and sell it for shit tons of money. That's literally what entertainment lawyers do, figure out how to make money off of people's stories. All three men have vehemently denied any involvement. And this points to an obvious question. Why would someone have pulled this hoax? For what gain? The fascination with Titer's story and his claims is still going strong. A couple movies have been made and books. You would think the author of the hoax might want to cash in on his own story. Before lugging the precious IBM 5100 back to 2036, John left a few last pieces of advice for the citizens of Earth or at least for the handful of people hanging around the message boards at the Time Travel Institute website. One, do not eat or use products from any animal that is fed or eats parts of its own dead. Two, do not kiss or have intimate relations with anyone you do not know. Three, learn basic sanitation and water purification. Four, be comfortable around firearms, learn to shoot and clean a gun. Five, get a good first aid kit and learn to use it. Six, find five people within 100 miles that you trust with your life and stay in contact with them. Seven, get a copy of the U.S. Constitution and read it. Eight, eat less. Nine, get a bicycle and two sets of spare tires. Ride it 10 miles a week. Ten, consider what you would bring with you if you had to leave your home in 10 minutes and never return. To be fair, these all sound like just pretty common sense rules to live by. Though, honestly, if it takes riding a bicycle 10 miles a week to survive in post-apocalyptic America, I'll volunteer myself to be one of the 3.5 billion who don't make it. Next time on Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan... The Toxic Woman. One night in 1994, a 31-year-old woman was rushed to the hospital in Riverside, California. But instead of treating her, the doctors and nurses around her suddenly became violently ill themselves. Physicians fainted and the hospital was evacuated, all because of whatever this dying woman had brought in with her. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but we want to hear your episode suggestions as well. If you have an idea for something we should cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. This episode was written by me and researched by Jessica Ann. Our voice actors this week were Luther Creek and Raymond J. Lee. A complete list of our sources for each episode is available on our website. Our episodes are mixed and edited by Jennifer Swatek. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUpod. And check out the Strange and Unexplained with Daisy Egan Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>